Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin, and my name is Todd Pruitt. I'm the pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Carl Truman, who is a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Now, Carl, um, as we usually do, not always, not exclusively, but but usually we, we do these via Zoom, and so I can see you and my question is: Is that the um, uh, is is that your wife's family's tartan you're wearing um, on on the vest? It's a it's it's a lovely uh, plaid. It is not. She is a by clan. She is a Campbell. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what tartan this is. I'm wanting to say it's the black watch, but I. I it it looks kind of like a black watch plaid. It's got a black watchy look, but I don't uh-huh. think it's a black watch. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, I'm a big waistcoat guy and yeah. a big uh bit yeah i like scottish tartans well let me let me ask you this the, the campbell uh tartan are you embarrassed by it is is it an ugly arrangement of colors or or do you try to honor it in some way my memory if memory serves correctly the campbell tartan is heavily dominated by yellow uh, yeah see that's perfect, a problem perfect acceptable but i'm not a big yellow guy I'm yeah yeah that's that's a problem yeah. is there something katrina can do about that Probably not, because yeah. the, the, the clan has authority in these matters. Yeah. Because they were all sort of invented in the 19th century anyway. It's one of those, you know. Oh, I see. So this this does not go back to when the um, the Scottish Isles were, were just populated by a bunch of naked pagans, right? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't believe okay. so. Because right. that was like in the, in the early 1900s, correct? 19, the early 1960s, <laughs> as far as I can make out. So... so. Okay, well, uh, uh, hey, listen, folks, you, you know how we we roll here. We just like to to make sure you're a part of Carl and I's uh, banter, so you can get an inside look as to at to the, the the substance and the depth of our friendship. But fortunately, we have someone who's going to help us pull out of that. And uh, today we have a returning guest. Uh, his name is Jonathan Landry Cruz. He is. Uh, uh, the pastor of Community Presbyterian Church, which, a, which is a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so he has a particular affinity with Carl. Um, I don't know if that means, you know, I mean, I don't know if it requires a particular level of grumpiness because Jonathan doesn't seem that way. But neither do I. I think we're uh, with a <laughs> cheerful wing of the OPS. Yes. Well put. That's good. That's good. But it's in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which by now is probably it's probably already snowed several feet in Kalamazoo, Michigan, from what I understand. Uh, but Jonathan uh, is uh, is a pastor there in an OPC church. He uh, he writes fairly broadly from everybody from the Gospel Coalition to Reformation 21 to Table Talk, Modern Reformation, etc. And uh, we had him on some time ago because of a really wonderful book he wrote um, on Christian worship. And uh uh, his latest book is a little book that um, I, I received. I was fortunate enough to receive it when it first came out. It's a wonderful um, study um, of the fruit of the spirit. Um, it's entitled The Character of Christ. And uh, uh, it's excellent uh, little book. I would I would commend it to you. 
um, in it, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, but just as an overview in it, uh, it's, it's a bit of an overview of the fruit of the spirit as, as we see that manifest in, in the life of Christ and, uh, it's banner of truth publication. And of course, banner publishes wonderful, wonderful books. Um, but Jonathan is our guest today. Jonathan, thank you for, uh, for being on with us. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I'm only sorry I didn't wear plaid. Um, well, it's, I didn't. It's, I didn't know we could talk about plaid that long. We, uh, well, you know, that's the that's the the beauty of this program is that there's nothing that's not fascinating, <laughs> um, especially well, when Carl is wearing it. Absolutely, absolutely. And <laughs> and for a man, you know, I earlier he said, you know, the the Campbell uh, tartan had a lot of yellow in it, which you know, actually that. Judging by some of the trousers you wear, Paul or uh, 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 Truman, um, I, I I would have thought that could be very appealing to you. I, I do, I do, I do sometimes wear yellow. It has. To be we said. we are all aware of that. We've seen yeah. the pictures. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, well, well, Jonathan, um, first of all, tell us just a little bit about the book in terms of um, why this book, why this topic, um, what drew you to investing the time it takes, mm-hmm. you know, to write a book on this, and kind of what's your aim. Yeah, well, uh, it it originated out of a series of sermons I preached for my flock back in 2020. Um, I was working through uh, Galatians, and when we got to the fruit of the Spirit, I told the congregation that um, we would come back and kind of do a, a in-depth series as soon as we concluded the epistle. So the first approach was was um, taken within the the entire pericope there in verses 19 through 26. Um, and then I finished Galatians right around uh, February of 2020 when um, I had already been planning to go to the Fruit of the Spirit. And of course, that's when we were shutting down and uh, shutting our doors and heading to live stream and all the rest that came mm-hmm. with COVID. So I ended up preaching this um, primarily in the summer of 2020. We were, we were back mostly, but um, in God's good Providence, it was a really good time for our yeah. congregation to reflect on what Christian virtue is and what it means to be loving and patient towards others. Um, so that that was a, a wonderful um, moment of growth, I think, for for our people. Um, of yeah. course, you don't need a pandemic to tell you that you need to grow in these areas of yeah. of uh, grace and and Christ likeness. So I think it's an evergreen topic, but. Um, the way I the way I approached it and the way the book is structured, as you mentioned, is that each chapter kind of takes a, a snapshot view at the life of Christ, a moment in the life of Christ, kind of an episode out of the Gospels that demonstrates um, each one of the particular fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and, and the aim there was to, to show um, my congregants first and then readers, hopefully, uh, that we can understand uh, godliness properly apart from looking to the Son of God. Um, and wanting to kind of root our understanding of sanctification, holiness, growth, and godliness in in the person of Jesus Christ, and getting mm-hmm. us to to behold His beauty and to fall in love with Him, and hopefully this book can just be a, a, a small means of helping people to do that. Yeah. Why do you think that sanctification is such a perennially vexed topic, uh, Jonathan, for Protestants? I mean, it's one of those. Questions that comes up again and again, and if you have spent any time in pastoral ministry, you'll know uh, even well-taught congregants get confused on on the issue of sanctification, its relation to justification, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think that Protestants struggle with this doctrine in, in, in such a way? Wow. Yeah, good question. There are probably so many ways to answer that, first and foremost, because we're sinners. 
and we we struggle to to know what to do with um, the the various commands given to us in Scripture. Um, I think what you said there about the relationship to justification is is apt, though. Um, we we often don't know how to deal with this topic without um, falling into legalism or antinomianism, and so I think a lot of times we just don't talk about it at all. <laughs> Let's, you know, we say, and, you know, and make sure, you know, you're, you're growing in godliness, but let's not get into the weeds on that because we don't want people to think we're being too law heavy. And we also um, don't want people to uh, think they can just get away with anything. So we'll just kind of leave it there. Um, so I think that that's an issue, but rooting the the doctrine of sanctification as it's meant to be rooted in our union with Christ cures a lot of those um those ills of of misinterpretation or or misapplying the doctrine. If we if we start with our our union to the Son of God and see that He has, as First Corinthians tells us, become you know righteousness, sanctification, redemption for us. He's become the holiness that we need to be. It totally shifts the paradigm of this discussion. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means really just to be who I already am in Christ, to be who God has made me to be. Um, that is not um, a license to sin. No, it, it actually liberates me from sin. It makes me want to uh, die to sin all the more because every time I think of sanctification, I'm thinking about the Savior who loved me and gave himself for me. It puts it in these very personal terms, which I think is a, a wonderful catalyst for for our holiness. Mm-hmm. It's very reminiscent in some ways of... Uh... And William Perkins' Golden Chain, where he has that that elaborate yeah. chart, it's based on Beza's uh, somewhat more uh, prosaic and simple table of predestination, but where the whole of the Christian life is continually coordinated with a sort of Christological sense. So you have the events of Christ's life and then the the order of salvation for believers framed around it. So we thought that was rather beautiful. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was a great way of putting it, Jonathan. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, I think sometimes, at least what I've heard for years in a lot of conversations with Christians is some real confusion regarding um, the fact that sanctification is by grace. It is a work of the Spirit. On the one hand, it's definitive. We've been declared holy. There is a declarative aspect to sanctification. We are sanctified, but we are also being sanctified. And some of the confusion I think that people struggle with is um, the nature of grace in sanctification. So, you know, we're sanctified by by grace. And yet, whereas justification, we're passive. Um, that's not the case with sanctification, is it? No, I mean, sanctification is, is an active call to um, live life, as, as Paul would say in Philippians, life worthy of the gospel, right? This is what God has done for you what's your response? What are you going to do in return? Uh, so we are called, we're, you know, we're also called to uh, work out our faith in fear and trembling. So we, we can't make sanctification a, a passive thing at all. And yet, nevertheless, we want to be very careful to still root it in the, the person and work of Christ and the power of the spirit, which applies his person and work to us. So, you know, what I kind of root the whole book in and, and it comes up either explicitly or implicitly throughout the book is John 15, five, right? I'm the vine, you're the branches. And unless you're in me, you can bear no fruit. So, you know, what's the point of talking about being loving or joyful or peaceful or patient if we're not in Christ? It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an effort in futility and, and we won't, we will not bear uh, that fruit that God's calling us to, but to put us into Christ 
and to work out the realities of our union with Christ uh, through the Spirit is still a gracious thing that God Mm -hmm. promises for us. So we still want to say sanctification is a work of grace too, Mm -hmm. which of course our catechism tells us that, right? It's it's not an act of grace, but still a work of grace, grace, grace. Right. And and it becomes as our our confession tells us it becomes uh, one of the means by which we receive assurance of salvation. If right, we absolutely. see the yeah. evidence of the Spirit's sanctifying work, that's evidence of our being united to Christ. Yeah, which is, you know, um, one of the reasons I think a study in something like the fruit of the Spirit is a helpful thing, because if that's how we're to know if, we're, if we are really in Christ, if we belong to God for the children of God is through our uh, holiness, then it really matters that I understand what it means to be loving in the way that God God does, or what it means to exercise kindness or self-control. And um, nowadays, a, a number of these terms have been co-opted by the, the world and the culture, never never fully understood ever you know, by the world in the way that the scriptures describe them. But now today, in a way, maybe unlike any other before, although I'm not the historian here, um, mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're being told what love means, you know, this is what it is, or um, this is what it means to be kind or accepting, whatever. And okay, well, is that what God's after in the fruit of the spirit? Does that mean I'm a child of God because I love in the way the world loves, or do I need to, you know, recalibrate my definition based on the scriptures? Yeah. As you were looking well, at this, no, oh, go ahead, Carl. Sorry, no, you you follow away. Well, I was just you're thinking, you know, as as you mentioned, love, you know, and as you thought through this as a pastor, and we're teaching this to a church, and then committing this to writing for a book. You know, you talk about, you know, the, the world has some real fixed ideas about love. Well, and scriptures has have some <laughs> real right. fixed ideas about about love as well. Where where do you see some of these days, some of the primary departure points there where what typically yeah. our unbelieving neighbor might think of when they think about love? Yeah. Um, might, might be really different than what we're, as Christians, we're, we're called to be and do. I think it's entirely different. I think they're antithetical to one another. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I look out my window in my study and I'll see, um, I see right now <laughs> a sign in my neighbor's yard that says love is love, yeah. um, which is, you know, a slogan splattered across a, you know, the rainbow flag on the background. Right. And um, really that doesn't say much of anything, but we know exactly what they're saying. You know, love is right. love isn't really much of a definition, but um, this is the way the world operates saying that you can't define uh, love. Love is actually subjective. Um, it's, it's a universal right. We all have the, the the right to express love in the way we want to express it. Um, so it's, you know, it's become a slogan of the LGBTQ community, which really is, is really now just culture in general is kind of um, uh, buying into it. Uh, so, so love is love. Is that what the Bible says though? I'm called to be loving uh, uh, evidence of the spirit at work in my life is, is to be loving to others and now they're telling me if I don't accept and affirm their views, uh, their behavior, that I am not loving. So that, mm-hmm. you can see how so how a Christian could really have a kind of a, a, a um, crisis of conscience when they're being told over and over again, you're not being loving. And yet they know that's the very thing they're called to do. So am I doing it or am I not doing it? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, hopefully if we root our sanctification in the person and work of Christ, we look to him. We say, how did he love us? And I thank God that he never accepted me or affirmed me in my sin, but rather he atoned for my sin. Mm-hmm. He didn't reject me. He didn't hate me. No, he loved his enemies and he died, but he never, you know, he never winked at my sin. He never said, well, that's okay. We can all do what we want, but he died for his enemies and he died for, for our sin. So 
I, I think the world is offering this kind of false dichotomy or this false dilemma, either you accept or you're not loving. And yet Jesus found some way to, to not affirm or accept, uh, this is the terms are used today, and still be loving. So the what's being lost there, the departure point, to get back to kind of the heart of your question, is that agape idea of love, which is, you know, the Greek word in the... Um, in the fruit of the spirit. I think the world talks a lot about Eros love, this kind of just, I need something and somebody's got to fulfill this need in me. Um, and yet that's, you know, we don't need the Holy spirit to come and produce that in our hearts. That's mm-hmm. just, we have that by right. nature. We need the Holy spirit to produce though a sacrificial love mm-hmm. that dies to self and is willing to die for neighbor. Um, and, and that's what we see in the life of Christ. And that's what God is working in us, but it is entirely antithetical to the world's conception of love. Mm-hmm. And and love in Jesus modeled this love. Uh, sometimes the person who loves well risks at least the temporary anger of the object of. I mean, yes. every parent learns yes. this. Yes, right. Yeah. That the most loving thing I can do for my child because they don't see what they should see yet. Right. Um. Will will risk them not liking me for a while, perhaps. Yeah. And that's hard. Yeah. What sort of strategy, Jonathan, would you suggest then? Not not just to pastors, but also to parents. In, in communicating a, a specifically biblical concept of love, because younger people today, and by younger, I probably mean anybody under the age of 30 at this point, growing up in a world where, as you rightly said, love has been evacuated of any real content, it's been reduced mm-hmm. to a kind of therapeutic sentiment. Uh, and that presents peculiar challenge to the church, because when the, the language we would typically use for the gospel has been thoroughly mm. secularized in a way, it's hard because we don't have a natural vocabulary to draw upon that that makes the point. Um, I've sometimes actually thought that European secularization was easier to cope with than American secularization because Christianity, at least for the longest time, retained a distinctive language, even if it was rejected by the wider culture. We had a language. In America, the the language got secularized. Hmm, right. That's a kind of, that creates a whole host of new problems. So, how do we express our concepts in language that everybody under the age of thirty is going to completely misunderstand? So, I'm really sort of asking here: you know, How do we catechize our young people, or how even do we engage in an apologetic strategy with our young Christian people to yeah. bring them on board with with what I find an, an absolutely solid biblical understanding of love as you articulated but that's going to be very alien even to those brought up within the church because of all the pressures coming from all around yeah Yeah, good question um you know returning to the idea of of sacrifice would probably be paramount jesus when he's asked you know how to define love um well that's not the the explicit question given to him but he does define love when he says greater love is no one than this that he laid down his life for his friends. So it's just, in essence, as though Jesus says, if you want to know what love is, you have to look to look to the cross, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody lays down his life for his friends, and you are my friends, Jesus says. And in a few um moments he's he's taken and he's he's crucified. So you look to the cross, and John repeats that in in first John too, right? By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So we see sacrifice kind of stands at the center of the love in which the scriptures speak of so often and call Christians too. And that is still an idea, I think, that people understand, even if it's not a, an ideal, it's not promoted, it's not champions. You know, we we believe in self-expression, not in sacrifice. And yet, I think our young people can still understand the importance of that um, within the church, especially uh, who are somewhat familiar with some of these concepts. 
But even as we think then about how do we speak of this to people outside the church, non-Christians, I, I think um, keeping the definition of love connected to um, a person and not just the person of Christ, but even ourselves, you know, um, we talk about relational evangelism. Um, we talk about needing to to build and establish friendships, rapport with people before we can um, uh, effectively maybe call out certain sins or, or effectively um, uh, share certain truths. So I think of, you know, you can do that with your, your kids. You can do that with your neighbor. Uh, say, you, you know me, you, you've, you've seen the way I've, I've acted. You've seen the things I've done. You, you know, I don't hate you. You know, I'm not a hateful person. You know, I, I care for you. You know, this is, this is what we do with our kids, right? When they have difficulty accepting something, we say, you know, I say to my son, uh, it, you know, your daddy, right? Yeah. Is he, is he mean daddy? No. You know, does daddy love you? Yes. Does daddy want what's best for you? Yes. So then take what you know of daddy and now apply that to this, you know, discipline or this thing I'm not letting you have. Doesn't that mean it must be, it must be good for you if you know these other things. I think we can do that with our friends too. You, you know me, I have a track record, right? Like or with a neighbor, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not bigoted. I don't hate you. I'm not out to get you. So since you know that about me, then what are, where I'm coming from must not be from a place of hate. I must actually want what's what's best for you. I think that brings everything to life for people when they can they can see this see the definition lived out, which is what Jesus said when he said, you know, look to the cross. Love is is laying down your life. So if we can kind of actualize it for people, uh, living the sacrificial life, and then saying that's the love I'm talking about. It's the love that you need too. It's the love that Christ has has uh, freely offered you in the gospel. I think that could help us uh, at least get the conversation started. You know, as we think about uh, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's Paul's intention there to give us an exhaustive compendium of, of right. all the ways we can describe Christ-likeness or, or godliness. And yet, why do you think, why do you think he specifically named the things he named? And, and you know, is, is there a unifying factor there, you know, we don't call them separate pieces, separate fruits of the spirit. And, you know, as long as you're doing okay, you know, they're, they're, it's the fruit. It's, it's seen collectively to a certain extent. And um, did you, as, as you were teaching through it, preaching through it, writing and laboring over that, um, you know, did you think through, I wonder why these things and not these things, and is there a, a unifying thread that we can identify? Yeah. Um, good question. Um, there's there's been some different suggestions thrown out there. Uh, I'm not sure if I would come down definitively on any particular position. Uh, one that I found though interesting is is um, that we have these nine virtues and that they can be split up possibly into three triads. Mm -hmm. So love, joy, peace are potentially more um, religious virtues or or mm -hmm. Godward virtues. The next three um, being social virtues, how we interact with with others. So when we're uh, talking about uh, patience, kindness, goodness, they're more manward than Godward. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there is some merit to that, especially if you think of how love, joy, and peace are used throughout scripture. It's certainly um, um, repeatedly used of, of what we have in Christ or what, mm -hmm. uh, what we have with God because of Christ. Um, and then the final triad would be, uh, has been described as sort of like these inward virtues, uh, describing the individual faithfulness, gentleness, mm -hmm. self-control, kind of who he is, the Christian man. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think Stott makes 
in his commentary makes that distinction. I think there's some helpfulness to that, um, but they're certainly all unified by the spirit who gives them. Mm -hmm. And there's really good news in that, Todd, because that means um, the spirit does not do a partial work of restoration. So if the Holy Spirit gives me love, I know he's going to give me joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. The reason that's good news is because sometimes, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, I might see some of these fruit, but not others. And I'll think, well, I am, I'm not really sensing that patience. I'm not seeing that patience right now. And if you're overly introspective, you could become discouraged by that. Maybe these aren't for me. Maybe this, maybe I don't belong to the spirit. Maybe I do belong to the flesh, but no one. And this has been, you know, you mentioned um, the confession mentioning this is um, uh, important for our assurance. You know, pastors and theologians have said this for, for centuries that um, just one evidence of grace is proof that we have all of grace coming mm. to us. So certainly it ebbs and flows. You know, we we yeah. might be more joyful. Um, you know, Carl and I, for example, being part of the cheery bunch of the OPC, we we know what that's like. Others maybe, you know, are lacking in that. Uh, I'm in PCA, so, so we struggle with self-control. So <laughs> Yes, right. You so, said it, not me. So, well, um, yeah. But the idea is that, but if you if you have one, it's proof that the spirits in your heart, yeah. and the spirits in your heart, he will work all of these. And as you mentioned, even those that aren't listed, and this is not an exhaustive list right. of virtue. Um, the the point is that we have because we have the spirit, we have Christ, and we will be made into the image of God's Son from one degree of glory to the next. That's that's the guarantee. It's mm, good. Well. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Jonathan. I think uh, the book is an amazing little book. I think preachers will benefit from it. I think it also works very well as a, a devotional. I think one of our two backing singers, one of the Karens, uh, was telling us that she has uh, been using it in her devotional time. So I do want to commend it to our listeners. Thank you for your writing and indeed for your ministry. It is good that you and I... Cheerful Presbyterians amidst the gray doer masses out there. <laughs> Where would uh, they be without us, Carl? Yes. <laughs> and now to our listeners, if you'd like to visit our website, mortificationspin.org, you can enter for a chance to win a copy of Jonathan's book, The Character of Christ, The Fruit of the Spirit in the Life of Our Savior. Uh, while you're visiting our website, please uh, feel free to make a donation. We are a listener-supported podcast. And also... Uh, If you uh, don't uh, win a copy of Jonathan's book, please uh, feel free to purchase one. It is available from Banner of Truth. And I've also been asked to mention the fact that uh, Jonathan has co-authored a book with other friends of this uh, program, Bill Bookerstein and Andrew Walker, Glorifying and Enjoying God, 52 Devotions, through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I'm assuming that that is not the Andrew Walker who is a Southern Baptist. I would imagine they were. No, it's, in fact, it's Andrew Miller. So. Oh, Andrew Miller. Oh, well, yeah. that's, we need to fire one of the Karens. She there gave me the wrong briefing on that. <laughs> no, or Sorry. Andrew Miller, who is, who is himself a Grover. So. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, and if Al Mola's and not, listening, and not a Baptist. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, if Al Mola's listening, don't fire Andrew Walker. We we, <laughs> we unfortunately identified him as a Presbyterian at that point. He would <laughs> never do that. He would not. <laughs> uh, and all that remains for me now is to thank you for listening and say that we look forward to being with you next time. Scots way will was blood. Scots one bruise has often led.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Thank you.